Amen. So now we continue in our study of Genesis. We were inspired by the call of Abram last week. Inspired that he was called while still steeped in the repulsive worship of idols. The son of a man named Moon. As they were immersed as a family in a trust in something other than God. The last line of faith on earth is dwindling to a mere thread. And it's at that very moment where God intervenes, as he often does, as we've seen it even in our own lives, intervenes to be able to establish with firmness his great plan to see all nations blessed and all of you one day to be able to sit here and know the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. We continue in this study now as we look at Genesis 12. And the title of the sermon today is The Call Stalls. You know, last week it was the power of the call. And interestingly, juxtaposed right to that passage is now in Genesis 12, starting in verse 10, a very serious stall to the call of God. Let's pray together and into Genesis 12 we go. God, here we are before you. Brought together by the blood of Christ, eager to look at your word, to see the guidance, to see you, but, but also to be able to see how it is that you regard us, your great plan for us, how it is that you want to use us, how it is that you want all nations to be blessed, and even for us to be a conduit of some sort for that very significant activity. Who are we, God? But yet you charge us with a life of, of such gravitas. Thank you, God, that you would regard us so highly to be able to carry on such a task. Help us to take inspiration from your intervention again and again through scripture. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Genesis 12 verses 10 on the call stalls. And again, we, we ended at, at the, um, in, in verse 9. And in verse 9, there was an ominous tone last week or two weeks ago. Then Abram set out. And continued towards the Negev. The Negev is just a word, it means south. But now he's, he's heading down towards the Gaza Strip in, in Canaan or in uh, Israel. Uh, very, very close to the borders of Egypt. As he begins to perhaps come a little bit close to playing with some things in the world. And with that ominous tone, now we begin to read in verse 10. Now... There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. That phrase for a while is he went to sojourn there. It, it could mean a short period of time, but actually when we read in the book of Ruth that uh, they, they went to Moab for a while, well, that was 10 years. So that was a 10-year sojourn. So the, the phrase for a while is, of course, relative. He went there for a while because the, the famine was severe. Famine just sounds terrible by itself. But you throw severe on top of famine. Boy. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And it seems like we're having this really intimate moment between a married couple here in the Bible. We think, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that kind of a good thing for us to be able to say one to another? For, for us as husbands to be able to say to our wives, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And all seems rosy until we read on. 
When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. That word diseases will appear later in Exodus 11. It's the exact same word for plagues that will be visited upon Egypt for the ultimate redemption out of Egypt, not just this one. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And I'll just read one verse in 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. And so not only was, was Abraham and Sarah down in Egypt, but also all of the extension of their families and all of the peoples that were with them uh, went down to sojourn for this time. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that just as we're inspired by the call coming to Abram, how quickly he can stall in his great mission that God has given him. Despite these promises that would make your hair curl in delight, that you're going to be a blessing, all nations will be blessed through you. People who curse you, I will curse. People who bless you, I will bless. All of this bestowed upon Abraham and fresh from this great significance and intervention and love from God, he then decides to not trust in God, but in himself. And why? Why is all of this? And that's my first point. Famines happen. And in this case, no ordinary famine, but a severe famine. But yet famines were not unfamiliar to this territory. But you know who they would have been unfamiliar to? People in Ur. People in Terah's family line. Abraham and Sarai would not have had great familiarity with the, the vagaries of the climate there in Canaan. Why? Because both the Tigris Euphrates, that's, that's where Ur was, it's a, a, a fertile valley that was there. Likewise, Egypt would not have been familiar with famine either, although it will, will come m much later. But at this point, the, the reason is, Deuteronomy tells us this in Deuteronomy 11. It says, the land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks the rain from heaven. So 
the, the land of Egypt is being described because of the, the, the great Nile Valley and the great delta and all the watering that was done there, that you could just take your foot and just kind of scrape it along the ground and you've just made an irrigation channel to go ahead and water your own little victory garden in your backyard right there. I mean, that's how easy things would flourish. Not so in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is a land where you need to trust in the Lord. You can't just kind of engineer this in and of yourself. You have nothing to do but trust in the Lord. It's part of the reason, I believe, that God brought them into such a land. A land of mountains and valleys. A land that drinks in the rain. A land that requires you to trust in the Lord. But so the famine happens. And it's not the famine that causes the mistrust on Abram's part. But what does famine do? What does any struggle in our life do? It doesn't cause me to be frustrated with my kids when I have a sleepless night. But you know what that sleepless night does? It exposes the arrogance that is in me that allows me to tee on off in some sort of a correction as I'm trying to train up my child in the way that he should go. What do the hard times do? The hard times expose what is really going on inside of us. When I'm short with Debbie or, or, or when I am frustrated at the, at the counter of, of some sort of service, again, those things are not to blame. We're not victims of such things, of such circumstances in our life. Jesus says it's out of your heart that sin springs, not out of the famine, not out of the circumstance, not out of the sleepless night. It just happens to be a condition that allows us to see. And so, so what are we to do to say, well, I can't wait till the famine passes. No, if something gets exposed, praise God that it's gotten exposed. And now we get to deal with what it is that has been exposed in our life. Now in, in Abram's life, there seems to be a couple of things that get exposed here. One is his self-reliance. Notice who doesn't come into play here at all as the famine comes and the decisions are made. There is no God going on here in Abram's life. The God to whom he had been building altars up and down the Mediterranean coast just moments before, suddenly now, in a hard moment, it is now where he decides to think for himself. And, and then when he gets to Egypt after having made this plan to go ahead and leave the promised land, leave the land that God would give to him, leave the place where he would launch a blessing for all nations in and of his own experience. And why does he make that decision? Not because of faith, but because of fear. That's the other thing that serves as a really helpful warning for us is that in the midst, even though we are a called people, that there will be things that come our way that are going to be difficult. Famines happen. You know the only group that doesn't say that famines happen? It's the despicable, putrid, repulsive heresy of the prosperity gospel. Which is nothing more than a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme. Where you kind of uphold the people at the top where the money flows. And look at how God has blessed them and isn't it wonderful? And it is an awful awful corruption of, of the gospel that we've been given. Uh, uh, such an, an awful corruption, in fact, that it would be hard to even reconcile the words of Jesus with the idea of this health, wealth, prosperity sham. In Luke 6, Jesus says, looking at his disciples, blessed are you who are poor, 
For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. You're going to go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. You're going to mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Famines happen. We need to embrace when famines happen. There's an interesting quote from the early church. Round about 200 AD. And in this quote, there is a discussion going on about this idea of health and wealth and prosperity. And one of the church leaders there says, no, we incur disease, illness, sickness, and death at the same proportion as the general population. But yet we serve Jesus. And if we did not, people would come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Famines happen. He says, if the world hates you, sorry, it's John 15, 18, not 14, 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He goes on to say, no servant's greater than his master. You think you're going to kind of get out of this if I didn't? You follow me. This is what went down with me. Famines happen. Even though you're called, famines happen. It's part of our living in a trust of the Lord. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If we have hope only in this age, only in this life, we're to be pitied more than all men. We're sojourners. Just as Abraham was a sojourner there, we are sojourners here waiting for the greater country, waiting for the greater blessing, waiting for the eternal as this mist, this shadow simply passes off the stage and the fulfillment of all things will really be ours. But in the meantime, during this mist, during this shadow, during this breath of a life, famines happen. And we need to embrace them at every turn and to recognize I still have a great God who allows me to rise above no matter what the famine is that is occurring in my life. But every time that the famine comes, perhaps perhaps it's a, a, a famine of your job being in peril. It's very easy to flip the switch to making sense of that situation. I love Bugs Bunny when he'd be kind of in a tough spot. He'd be like, uh, think quick, rabbit, think quick. And, 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 and that's kind of like what we're like. It's like, think quick, rabbit, think quick. And do I make sense of the situation and fashion a response based on fear or based on faith? On. A fear response is, I, I, I just got to get some income. I just got to you know, circle the wagons and get this without any thought. To what it is that perhaps God would want you to trust in him at that moment. And a a good indicator that you're working out of fear is that you don't invite godly advice into your life. Abraham didn't hear. There was no calling upon the Lord. There was no seeking the counsel of God at all in this midst. 
It was just, oh, famine. I think there's food down there. Sarah, let's go. I know it's perilous. Eh, it could be bad consequences, but, but, but let's go on down there. The consequences, though, may be so much greater than we could even begin to imagine when we make decisions based on fear. There are a lot of folks who, in, in order to, in, in a sense, have security in a paycheck rather than a security in, in God, will rearrange and pick up their family and move to another geographical area where they don't know what is going to be the spiritual community that is going to help them flourish in life in Christ. And they don't even know what that might be for their kids as well. But it doesn't come into play. It's not the kind of the salient considerations of the decision-making process. Where there should be one deterministic consideration. One and one alone. What is the will of God? What am I doing in this situation that will best show that I am living in alignment with Jesus Christ? How has Jesus informed my decision rather than me out of fear taking out the yellow legal pad, you know, kind of putting the, the line down the middle and using just worldly thinking to kind of figure out what, what uh, Benjamin Franklin called it, uh, moral, moralistic algebra. You know, here's the pro, here's the con, here's the pro, here's the con. You know, in algebra, you set an equation on either side of the equal sign, you cross them out, and then you kind of see which of the two balance out there. I mean, that's kind of the best that we do at times, trying to think that we're being prudent. But a worldly prudence based on fear is not prudence. It is instead an idolatrous trust in something other than Jesus. Stuff is going to come your way again and again and again. Perhaps it will be sickness or illness. Perhaps it will be that in, in, in a family member. Perhaps it will be the, the job insecurity that will take you for a spin. Who, who knows what it might be, but it's coming our way. And as it comes our way, are you going to figure it out through a lens of faith, through a lens of, of reliance upon Christ and godly input, or through a lens of fear and self-reliance. Here's what happened. And by the way, the consequences, just so you know, you know, it says in verse in chapter 13 that and, and Lot came out, Lot went down there with him. You know, everything that happens to Lot later on is a result of going down to Egypt right now. In verse 10 of chapter 12. Because Abraham brought Lot down with him, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the horrors that would all occur because of those nations, all of it is the unforeseen consequence of the decision that Abraham makes right here. We don't even realize the ripple effect of some of our decisions until we have a very significant long-run look into the rearview mirror of how all of that worked out. But we're often not given that advantage of hindsight. And, and so what do we have instead? We have a trust in the will of God. But because Abraham went down and Lot went with him, it says later that Lot, having had a taste for Egypt and having gone to appreciate Egypt, when they came to settle back up into Canaan, where did Lot want to go? He wanted to go down by Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because it reminded him of Egypt. And all that befell him, the pillar of salt, the indignities with his daughters, all of that was the unintended and unforeseen consequence of making decisions out of fear rather than out of faith. But when it just seems impossible and you make these decisions that seem to make no sense at all, but they're based on faith, 
the remarkable way that all of those things come back around in ways you couldn't anticipate that God would make that happen in your life. I mean, for Deb and me, that's happened time and time again, where we've done things that made no sense whatsoever to our families, to our friends. But my goodness, now with just a maybe a decade or so to be able to see the, the way that God had worked through all that, we thank God, thank God that, that we really did hold to godly input and advice in the midst of those situations and didn't allow our fears to win the day and really guide the decision-making process. But now here's the, something else that happens in the midst of this famine. He goes down and he offers up Sarai, of course, and we, you know, we, we read the interchange then with Pharaoh. And in the midst of that, we have Pharaoh basically looking at him and saying, what in the world have you done, Abraham? And my second point is rebuked by the world. Abraham not only doesn't trust in God in this big decision to no longer sojourn in the promised land, but he abandons the promised land. But he also abandons the great promise of God. It all comes down to Sarah. Through Sarah will your offspring be. And through your offspring all nations will be blessed. But Sarah is getting a little long in the tooth. God, Yes, through Sarah. Trust in me. Through Sarah. Everything comes down now through the family line. And through the ironclad promises of God. Through Sarah. And at this very moment, he then thinks to himself, and and this is actually a phrase that's used later, you know, Abraham doesn't just do this once, he'll do it again in chapter 20. I mean, almost takes the playbook and reruns the play. It's astounding. But in, in Genesis 20, he says, I said to myself, you know, when Pharaoh asked him, what? I'm sorry, when when Abimelech asked him, why'd you do this thing? Well, I said to myself, you people have no fear of the Lord. Wow, that's a little bit hypocritical at that moment, isn't it? If you fear in the Lord, you're not going to fear a Pharaoh or Abimelech. Fear only God. Here he is, now having trusted in himself and having taken Sarah, the very embodiment of, Of the ongoing promise of God. This wonderful vessel of God. That will be used to bring forth a blessing for all people. Ultimately all of us sitting here. And ah, I can't even imagine this. And he presents her as his sister. So that Pharaoh can take her into his harem. That way I won't be harmed. Because it was likely. we, we, We know this from other biblical texts. Texts that show us that if a a despot or a ruler with great power sees an attractive woman, he might in fact take her to be his wife and kill off the husband. Here's the sadness that we know this from scripture because we know in ancient times this occurred because it did occur in scripture. David did it to Uriah when he looked and saw Bathsheba and said, go get her for me. Abduct her, bring her on over to here. I'll figure out the rest of the stuff with the husband later on. So, yes, this is no kind of idle threat that he imagines, Abram here, but, but this was something that really could have been the case. But nonetheless, rather than trusting in the Lord at this very moment, he trusts 
in a half-truth, which is really a full-lie scheme, to be able to present Sarai, the one from whom God's blessings will come, from, from, from her body will come the blessings, and to give her body over to that harem. Like, this, this is a bad spot. And it's all deception, and he, and he, he works a scheme there with Pharaoh, and, and for the world to rebuke him, this is a pretty bad place to be. 1 Corinthians 5 says, it's actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you of a kind that even pagans are not going to tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife in that situation there. That's a, that's a rough spot to be. But I bring this up to show that this call is going to remain on Abraham. Amazingly. Like after this distrust in the Lord and deciding to trust in himself and deciding to practice a deceit and a scheming and to even hand over the very object of the promise of God, Sarah, he still is under the call of God. I don't know where you've ended up in different times in your walk with God, but you probably haven't gotten to the point, if you're married, where you said, you know what, honey? I, I think it would go better for us right now. You know, we're, we're falling a little short in our budget, and you know, I'm worried that maybe we won't have enough food to, to feed ourselves. We might die even. I'm going to go ahead and pimp you on out. Right? Nobody's gotten to that place. Right? You think about, oh, I don't know if God can use me anymore. I don't know if I'm under the call anymore. You have not gotten that low. There is a God who remains faithful when he brings you into his sight and he calls you by his word that we have not yet even begun to appreciate. But nonetheless... We need to heed that call and to live up to it. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And in that matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God didn't call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. And when we decide to go that route, it does have consequence. Just like Abram's sin. Yeah, he's still under the call, but there are dire, terrible consequences. And when you read on throughout the rest of the Old Covenant, and you see what happens to the line of, of Lot. And the Moabites and the Ammonites. It is not a good picture. But even for us, when we decide, you know what? Oh, I, I think just this bit of impurity won't be so bad right now. Maybe this is a wise way for me to go. Kind of a pressure release valve. I'll be okay better. I'll be, I'll be better later if, if I kind of indulge in this way. No, it, it, it has awful consequences that do not go away. We may be forgiven of sin. But the consequences of sin are not just magically erased. The consequences of sin remain. Even David and his sin with Bathsheba, the rest of the horrors of his life, although he is forgiven, the rest of the really debilitating consequences of, of that sinful act affect the rest of David's life. And it is a miserable contrast to the wonders that were his life before that event. But for us, one of the things that I, I find so just disheartening 
is to sit down in a Bible study with a seeker. And this has happened uh, in our campus ministry hundreds of times. And even as we study the Bible ongoing, somebody's seeking God and the brothers gather together and we begin to share about the call of God and its significance and the intervention of Jesus Christ and what he wants for us and the, the deliverance of repentance that has affected our lives and forgiveness that is ours. And then we, we try to help bring about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and yet there are brothers, sometimes even me in that study, that I have to say, oh yeah, you know what, I, I've kind of done that too. And not that long ago. You know, the very conviction of the Spirit, when we don't actually exemplify the power of the gospel... It is as though we just cut it off at the knees. And what would have been a powerful hammer of God in loving kind of reclamation project of the seeker suddenly is, is left anemic. Because we thought ah, it wasn't such a big deal. Oh, now here I am in a Bible study and I can either be a hypocrite and lie about this or I could be real and, and sadly, you know, try to still help this person see that there's still power in the gospel. Live in a way that is in alignment with the, the call of God. And see what it is that we can do when we can bless other people. When they see what it looks like to, to have repentant people that, that really have repented being able to live before them. And I, I, I get that, that there are moments that we fall. But my goodness, those moments should not define our lives. First Peter does say, Peter would know. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, but yet was brought on back. Jesus who said to him, I'm, I'm going I'm to bring you back. I'll talk about that in a minute. But Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The word used for Abram as he's sojourning. The word used for us as we sojourn in this land. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. They wage war against your soul. And live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. You know what helped me as a pagan of all pagans? I mean poster child paganism right here. As I was seeking God and I sat down for a Bible study that all those men in that living room led such good lives in sincerity that all I could do is just say, I, I, I shut my mouth. And just want to hear what the scriptures have to say. Because I didn't know that living the way that you men live is even possible. That you live such good lives. All I can do is praise God and say, where's the next scripture? I realize now that I need what it is that this is saying to me. This is where we are called to be, brothers, sisters. That we are to live such good lives in alignment with the gospel calling that is ours. That we share not only the gospel, but our lives as well, as Paul says to the Thessalonian church. And when we share the gospel in our lives as well, wow, the power that is there. But nonetheless, Abram is rebuked by the world. There may be stuff that's going on in your life that perhaps even friends at work are like, dude, what is that? Are you really going to, you're going to really present that as your finished work? Are you really going to say that? Are you really going to cut that corner? Are you, are you really going to kind of dish on our neighbor in that way as, as we kind of have this chat at the bus stop this morning? Is this really what's going to go on? You're going to kind of, kind of cast that kind of aspersion on your, on your husband or your wife as we're having this conversation. 
You, you may have ended up in such a place or beyond and think, ah, the call is gone. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer in any way useful to the master. Well, here's the beauty of this passage. Just as it gets as ugly as it can get, who is waiting to swoop in and be the hero again? God. God brings it to Pharaoh. Hey, let me give you some little mini plagues right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? My, my, my people, they're, they're in a mess right now. They're in a, like a, a royal mess, really. But here's the deal. If you take advantage of their mess, I'm going to bring down the fist of God on you like you don't even know. But a Pharaoh years from now will know. But right now, I'm just, just going to give you some little plagues right now. Just to kind of wake you up and realize that something bigger is going on here than you realize. You know what? God has got your back even in the midst of our messes. Like how amazing is that? And my last point. Get back up. And run his race. You know, spoiler alert. Abraham goes on to bless many nations. You're sitting here because of Abraham. Abraham has continued to be used by God. David faltered like Abraham. But when he turned, he said, cleanse me. Cleanse me with hyssop. That was kind of a cleansing herb or branch. I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. He's praying this in Psalm 51. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my inequity. Create me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant a willing spirit in me to sustain me. And then look what he says next. And then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. So that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from all this bloodshed, God. You who are God and my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. Even to Peter, who says such strong things here after he's been restored. After he's going for it again in alignment with the call of God. Even Peter says... Now, even Jesus says to, to Peter, after he denies him three times, he says, Simon, Simon, it's Luke twenty two thirty one. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. All of you. But I have prayed for you, singularly, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, see that the, the anticipation of Jesus in every one of us, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter's like, I'm ready to go to the death for you. Really? Rooster's going to crow in a day, and you're going to disown me three times before that. But you will turn back. And when you do turn back, you will have the keys to bring into God all those. I don't know where you're at, but God's will for you right now, no matter how bad the stumble, no how bad the falter, God's will for you as you sit here right now, Maybe you've become anemic in your service to the Lord. Maybe he's not anywhere on your priority. You, none of that matters because God's will for you is to get it back the way that he's always meant for it to be for you. You have been called by the scripture. Maybe you're trying to seek God and you've kind of come close 
faltered back. Come close, faltered back. You think, ah, how many times is God going to put up with me just kind of dabbling in God rather than finally going all in in God? Surely he is just kind of at the end of his patience at this point. Even with that, God wants you to get back up and run his race. I'll finish with it. It's a cute poem, but it really speaks to the father who watches us as we stumble again and again. Whenever I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race, a children's race. Young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race. Or tie for first, or if not, at least take second place. Their parents watched from off the side, each cheering for their son. And each boy hoped to show his folks that he would be the one. The whistle blew, off they flew like chariots of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy who thought he'd win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place. And midst the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. As he fell, his hope fell too. He couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face. And with a steady look that said again, get up and win that race. So he jumped up again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he gained eight, then 10. But trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped. He fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up. An echo sounded low. You haven't lost at all. For all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more, refusing the forfeit. And he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been. Still he gave it all he had and ran like he could win. Three times he'd fallen, stumbling. Three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win. He still ran to the end. They cheered another boy who crossed the line and won first place. Head high and proud and happy. No falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. 
And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and bleak and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. And when depression and despair shout loudly in my face, another voice within me says, get up and win that race. Brothers and sisters, reclaim your call. It's God's will for your life. Reclaim your call. Amen. Amen.